0: Tonight, we are going to go over a message I'm entitling, None of These Things Move Me, based on Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Acts 20, 24, by the way, is my favorite verse in the Bible. So I'm sharing the scripture, but I'm a little biased tonight. Uh... This is something that many people call a life verse and it's my life verse and I found out it's a couple other pastors and, and people's life verses. I once heard a uh, Pastor Don McClure who's a Calvary Chapel pastor teach on this verse at a Calvary Chapel pastors conference and Don McClure is a guy who he's been through some rough stuff in his life. He had a lung surgery that he actually didn't need. And he only has one functioning lung now. And then he had an eye surgery. And so he can only see out of one eye. And and so as you read this verse, you'll kind of hear Paul the apostle say some shocking things. And Don McClure said, but this is the verse that he goes to for encouragement. Jeremy Camp, a famous uh, worship leader and, and music writer, He also said that this is his life verse. Uh, Probably took it after me. But uh, Jeremy Camp, if you saw the movie, uh, I Still Believe, talks about how his first wife died of cancer. And this was the verse that kind of pulled him through. And so this is the verse I go to time and time again, and I hope that it becomes your favorite verse as well. So let's read the verse, Acts 20, 24. We'll pray and uh, we'll talk about it. Paul the Apostle says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Lord, we we thank you so much for what you have done this past week and Ben and Sarah and her family and there's many others, Lord. We can always testify of the good news, Lord that you came 2000 years ago and you saved us from sin and death and you're still working today. So we thank you and praise you for that and pray Lord that tonight as we read your word that it would pierce us differently, that we we'll leave here as changed people in Jesus name. Amen. So Paul the apostle is writing uh well this is a recording of some of the things that he was saying. Luke was the one who actually wrote Acts. But Paul is coming to the end of his ministry and he's talking to the Ephesian elders for the very last time because he knew that he was about to be persecuted and eventually killed for his faith in Jesus. Very different than today's times. in The time that Paul and the early apostles lived, many of them, if not all of them, close to all of them, were killed for their faith in Jesus. And Paul was one of them. But the difference was Paul knew that he was going to die for his faith. And as he's talking about it, what's going to happen to him? He says the shocking words, none of these things move me. I know I'm going to die. I know I'm going to be persecuted. I know that only chains and tribulations await me. But at the end of the day, none of these things really move. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not shaken by these things. And so I look at that verse, I'm like, that is a pretty hardcore verse, right? Like, how can somebody say that? They can stare at adversity. They can stare at the loss of their own life and say, but at the end of the day, I don't really care. These things don't move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself. I, I mean, like whether I live or die, it's not, it's not really a big deal to me. To live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul said. Why, why would he say these things? Well, he says, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What Paul is saying here is there's a joy that only comes as a result of us finishing our race well. And some of us, unfortunately, some of us in this room will never know what that joy is like. Because the way that we live our lives is in, in terms of how safe can I live how successful can I be living for self, but not really living for the Lord. But Paul had one focus, kind of like David. He says, one thing I desire, one thing that I seek, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. This is Paul's desire. And he says, you know, I'm not shaken by these trials. I'm not shaken by these chains and tribulations because I know when I finish my race, Jesus will look at look at me face to face and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome into the joy of your Lord. So there is joy that comes only as a result of finishing our race well. Some of you who know that I love to go rock climbing. I've been doing it for over a decade now. Inside, outside, I do it all the time. Um, and at one point, I was very competitive with rock climbing, and and so Outside, you have certain climbs. There are certain difficulties. It's not about speed. It's all about difficulty for us. So there's one climb that I was working on for a very long time. And so some of you who know sports or any kind of skill, you know what it's like to be trying to push your boundaries. If you're in weightlifting, you you have a set goal and you're working towards that goal or you're swimming, you're trying to get a certain speed. For me in climbing, there was a certain climb that I had obsessed over. And I would drive two hours to New Paltz, New York, Every week, you know, with a couple friends, who was, whoever was crazy enough to go with me, then we'd take a hike a half hour in for this one boulder so that I'd be able to climb on top of it. And so boulder climbing, you're only climbing about maybe 12, 15 feet at most. You have pads underneath you. And so that's what I was doing, obsessing over this very difficult climb, and this was like eight years ago, which is sad, because it's like time flies by really fast. But up until this point in my life, that is the most difficult thing that I had tried. And the most time-consuming thing that I had tried. And I tried so many times and failed. And I was training to do specific movements, training and visualizing, trying to do everything possible so I would be on top of this stupid rock. That's all I was obsessed over, right? And so if you ask me about like, am I enjoying the process? I'd say like, maybe, but mostly I'm just frustrated because I'm disciplining myself dedicating time and energy, and then you come home, the two-hour drive of shame. You didn't get it. You know, some of you who play sports know what it's like to be on travel teams and you're driving far away with your, you know, when you're in high school or whatever, and they're coming back, you all lost and everybody's just quiet in the bus, right? And so that's me. I'm coming back. It's always a loss. I always felt like, why do I even try? Maybe I should just move on. But then one day, I actually did it. It was like the worst conditions ever. It was raining out. It was a miserable day. I thought maybe we shouldn't even go. And I brought a couple guys with me and I got onto the top of the rock. And that feeling that I got when I finally did it after years of working on the same thing and finally being able to do it. It's like, I couldn't even explain It, it was a state of euphoria, right? To be able to finally get to the end. And what Paul is saying is there is a joy that only comes if you finish. But some of us, we're content with starting, but never finishing. Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse eight, it's a verse that I have really held near and dear to my heart. Solomon says, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The NLT says it this way. Finishing is better than starting. Patience is better than pride. Anybody can start something. Literally today, anybody can have a good idea, but who's going to see that idea to completion? Anybody can start a business, but are you going to see that business through? If you've ever watched Kitchen Nightmares, something that I've like binge watched at times, love watching Gordon Ramsay and just getting like all angry at people and stuff. And then the whole point is like people who have these restaurants are running them in in dire situations and the whole thing's dirty and and gross and disgusting. Gordon Ramsay, this celebrity chef comes in and he saves the day and remodels the whole thing. Everyone's like, whoa, this is awesome. You know, like, I can't believe that you did this. Um, And so I would watch these episodes, but some of them are like from the early 2000s. So they're kind of old. And the most depressing thing would happen is you see this beautiful remodeled restaurant at the end of the episode, and then you Google that restaurant and then you find out it's closed. I mean, what's the point? If you start something, but you can't finish it. Too many of us are content with the appearance of success, but are you living your life successfully in the Lord's eyes? So Paul the Apostle in this passage, Acts chapter 20, gives three keys to finishing well. Three keys to finishing well. Number one is faithful living. Number two is faithful proclamation. And number three is a faithful departure. So faithful living is number one. We'll look at verse 17 through 19. So here's some of the background of this passage. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when uh, when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. So we know Paul had gone on so many missionary journeys. He wanted to share the gospel with whoever he could. And he was intentional about those journeys. And sometimes the Holy Spirit would actually hinder him and say, I don't want you to go there. I want you to go somewhere else. And the Holy Spirit had led him to this point where he's before these elders or pastors of these different churches and giving his last visit. But here's a couple things that we see in Paul's faithful living. First, we see that Paul was consistent in his lifestyle. He says that in verse 18. He says, you know, in what manner I always lived among you. Paul was consistent in the way that he lived which is sad considering the state of many leaders in our world today. We've talked about this before, but Ravi Zacharias is the one. It's not like Ravi Zacharias was doing everything right and literally every person on the planet is shocked. Like we are, because we don't know Ravi. But what's even more depressing is when you do the research and you look up the articles and you see what people said, you find out that the inner circle saw things wrong and did nothing about it. The fact of the matter is he was good at covering it up, but he was not consistent with his lifestyle. There were many problems, you know, and in case you didn't know, there's, you know, Ravi had many counts of sexual abuse and manipulation and with massage therapists, the whole thing is is traumatizing. But he would go on these trips on a plane and he'd only take his massage therapist with him. And nobody questioned, nobody said anything. So then, the question is, are we going to be people who are consistent in person and in private, on our social media and in private, in church and when you're at home, when nobody's around? Pastor Lloyd, you always ask the question, who are you? Uh, you know who you are when nobody is around. And those in Ravi's inner circle knew, and we have to ask ourselves, does your inner life match your outer appearance? You see, many social media stars, they are quitting because they can't take the pressure. They have this glamorous appearance. And and Generation Z, everybody wants to be TikTok famous and Instagram famous. And some of us here, too, you're just waiting to go viral. But then many people at the top, they know the pressure and the demands of people's attention and opinions. When everything that you post is evaluated through millions, sometimes, of eyes, thousands of eyes. It's crushing. So many people quit or some people go through depression and their lives are a wreck. So who are you when you're at college versus at work versus at home versus in church? Well, Paul, he says, you know, the manner in which I always lived among you. He was a consistent person. He could not be canceled because there is nothing else to dig up. He's not the guy that you search Paul's tweets and like, oh, I don't know about this one. Paul was consistent. And he also says that he lived among the people. Now there's some people because they want to keep their appearances, they never let people too close. Dangerous. And and obviously we're talking about pastors here, but I think this is a practical thing thing for every Christian. Do you always hold people at arm's length because you're afraid of them seeing the real you? You can come to church and, hey, come to the big gatherings, come to the Sundays and like, hey, how's it going? But nobody really knows you and nobody can really hold you accountable. That's why it's so important to be in a home group and to make Christian community, not just assume you have community because you showed up to a worship gathering. But for pastors, how much more important it is for people like me, people like John and, and George who are elders to live among the people. And what's sad is we have celebrity pastors, right? We have people on Instagram, social media, and whatever. And they're preaching. They're giving amazing sermons. But you don't know these people. They don't live among you. I don't know who has to hear this tonight, but Stephen Furtick is not your pastor. Craig Rochelle's not your pastor. Mike Todd is not your pastor. These guys are not your pastor. Like some of their sermons. But they don't know you. You don't know them. They're not living among you like Paul did. And Paul traveled... But he says, when I lived, I didn't go and hide in the green room. I didn't go hide in my hotel or hide in my office. He lived among the people. Which is actually, here's, here's a newsflash. It's one of the qualifications of being a pastor. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 says that a pastor needs to be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So So if you're evaluating a person, whether or not this person should be a pastor, it's the question of, well, how does he manage his household? Like you actually have to be able to see inside of his household. And this is the expectation that a church should not raise up a person as pastor and overseer, unless you really knew them. But like, do you know Stephen Furtick's kids? I don't. Maybe you follow him on Instagram. But at, at the end of the day, we need to know who these people are. And for those of us who desire to be pastors, to not look at, trying to be a celebrity. Instead, trying to be just a humble servant. My job, George's and and John's and Pastor Lloyd's, all of our job is simply to help you become the best you in the fullness of Jesus Christ in his love and the knowledge of him. That's my job. So if you want to get coffee with me, I have one goal in this meeting, right? It's so that you know fully what you're called to be and to be edified in the love of Christ so that you can serve others. So this is a a warning for those who might want to aspire to be successful or wealthy because wealth, success divides people. In the book of James, we see in one particular church that there was a division between the rich and the poor and they start giving special seats like VIP seating to people who are rich and then the poor, it's like, oh, you got to sit over there. And so James says in chapter two, verse five, listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he had promised to those who love him? Some of us, it's like, in our culture, it's it's such a huge thing to like rise up out of your roots, right? To to like leave the bad neighborhoods. If you grew up in like the slums in one city or that city, you're going to rise above and live in a mansion one day. And it's like, you never go back. But God, God, his eye is on the poor, it's on the person who's impoverished. And he has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Meaning like, if you're a rich person, you don't feel like you need as much faith because you have everything at your fingertips and in your wallet. But a person who's poor, they're a little bit forced to exercise faith because they have nothing else. To, to look to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills and I'm going to be able to make ends meet put food on the table. I have no idea. You're going to have to help me. And those poor become rich in faith. Be careful about aspiring to be successful or wealthy, famous, because you might leave the very community that you need in order to be able to exercise faith. So Paul was consistent. Number two, Paul was a servant in his lifestyle. Verse 19. He says, serving the Lord with all humility with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. So I keep on knocking social media, but it's just an easy example, because it's like, especially when we've been quarantined for a past year, most of our community has been online. So you're bound to see a lot more stuff online than in person at this point. And uh, Paul, his goal was to be a servant, not a leader. His goal is to be the janitor, not to be Instagram famous. That's to be living this lavish lifestyle where you have so much money, you don't know what to do. So you just pull your fans and ask them, what what should we do with all this money? Because we have no clue how to manage our own money. No, Paul served the Lord with all humility. So if Paul was willing to do it, Jesus was willing to do it when he washed his disciples' feet. The question is, why aren't we willing to do it? And I'm not saying like serve like in like the most glamorous, like, Yes, I will serve on the worship team, not, not knocking any worship leader. I will serve as a teacher. Like I'm a teacher, I, I, I understand. But like, usually our default is like, how can I get the most exposure and the most impact? And you don't think about God says, let your good deeds be done in secret and the Lord who sees you in secret will reward you openly. There's, there's a certain kind of character building that only takes place in a secret place. There's a a certain kind of thing that God does in your heart when you're used to being the lowest of the low. When you start off serving the least of these, it humbles you so that you have the character ready to receive the good uh, good gifts that God would give you later on. In fact, you shouldn't teach until you've had an opportunity to serve the least of these. Basically saying, No task is below me. I mean, if you need me to like sweep the floors, I'm gonna talk about not just grading, I'm talking about church, you know, Sunday service. It could be like sweeping the floors, cleaning the bathrooms. Why not? I mean, it's it's our family, right? And this is our family's house. And if you came over my house, you'd see that I'm probably gonna do dishes or do laundry or do one of those chores. Not because I'm like, oh, I really want people to see how holy I am. It's because it's my family. It's just what we do. And when you feel like, this is your family. You start to see the church building differently. Start to see your money differently because you start investing in the church building. You're, you don't just invest in things that you feel like are going to have like an impact on a child in Haiti or something. You start saying like, okay, I do like to support missions. I do like su- supporting people that are impoverished, but also I want to support this church in keeping their lights on because I, I don't know how much it costs, but I assume they need money in you know, order to keep the building going, Right? So you start seeing it differently. It's like this money that I have, it's not my money, it's God's money. So I go to this church, I'm a part of this church. So I might as well give a percentage of my weekly, monthly income, whatever, to helping this church continue to function. So not as a legalistic rule, but just as like, do you see this church as your family? Because Paul did and he was willing to serve with humility. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, he said, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. See, Paul said that no task is below him because he really f- thought low of himself. There's a lot of like, there's like a whole movement today for like self-love, like really think highly of yourself. But really like Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, not because you're supposed to love yourself. We all love ourselves naturally. Even when you're doubting yourself, you're loving yourself because you're thinking about yourself. We all love ourselves naturally. But Paul, he had an accurate assessment of who he was because he measured himself, not on his fellow man, but against Jesus. And so he went, I mean, like, I'm a good person compared to, like, that guy. But compared to Jesus, I know who I am. I know the propensities in my heart. I know the temptations I experience. And the fact that God saved me, he said, I persecuted the church. I don't deserve to even be here. If I don't deserve to even be here, then obviously washing people's feet is not beneath me. Sweeping and cleaning and serving with all humility, it's not beneath me. And even if I think it's beneath me, then I'll just follow my, my leader, Jesus, who washed people's feet. See, it's all about being a servant. And when we're a servant, that's how we finish well. That's what Paul made his aim to be, is not to find his own pursuit of happiness and life and, and dreams. It was just asking the question, how do I serve God and how do I serve others? So that was a faithful Lifestyle. Let's look at number two in verse 20, where the second key for, for finishing well is faithful pro- proclamation. You have faithful living and now faithful proclamation. Verse 20, Paul says, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So first he says he kept nothing back. And we, we as pastors, Pastor Lloyd, myself, you know, leaders here at the church, we are held accountable to give the full counsel of God. Look at verse 25 as he continues in this thought. He says, indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I am not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. So Paul here is saying that like, listen, you can't can't point at him and saying that he had like a light gospel. Or he left things out of the Bible. That's not to say that he didn't teach, obviously he didn't teach Genesis to Revelation because he didn't have access to Revelation at that point, right? But the point is, the full counsel, the whole counsel of God, he's getting them in the word of God and he's making sure he's not leaving anything out. Which is why we got to be careful these days because you can go to churches where the pastor talks about the thing that he wants to talk about all the time. Like right now I'm doing topical messages because you're getting, hopefully on Sundays with Pastor Lloyd or at your church, you're getting a verse-by-verse teaching through books of the Bible. And you're having a time of personal Bible reading on your own. So then I can use this time to say like, okay, what are specific topics that God wants to impart to his church? Which is great, but it should not be the norm. All of us need to read passages that we don't want to read. The genealogies, no one wants to read that. And if you are, then talk to me afterwards. You're more holy than me. There are portions of the Bible where you're just, I've hey, got that already. i figured that one out. Or I don't want to hear that one. But we all need to hear what God has to say, not just what we want to hear. And that includes in churches. Because it's really easy to go to the church where all they do is talk about your calling. Like, oh, yes, I want to hear a message on that. You scroll through. You know, you're going on Spotify. And you're listening to playlists, playlist. And you're like, okay, this one's on dating. This one's on calling. This one's on my future. Okay, good. It's like, all, all the messages you listen to are those three topics. Those topics are important. However, all of us need to know God. That's why we come to church, not to hear about ourselves. We come to hear about God. Because the more we know him, that's the only way we'll actually know ourselves. Only way you'll know about your calling is if you know God first. Otherwise, things will be in the improper order. And then Paul also shared the full counsel precisely because he knew there would be a false counsel. Really important. If for nothing else, so you're just like, okay, maybe I'll read the Bible. Like I'll eventually read the whole, through the whole Bible. Maybe I'll listen to a verse by verse teaching every now and then. If for nothing else, you need the full counsel because there will always be a false counsel. And sadly, people who say that they're pastors preach intentionally a message to divide the church, which is why we need to be fully aware of what God's word says so we know what it does not say And you see things oh my gosh it kills me how many things on TikTok and Instagram and, and reels right now of people saying such garbage and they're not pastors but they, they're like self, self-proclaimed preachers here I am and here, here are three things you didn't know about the real Jesus and, and they just like kind of point around like like they're dancing or something and the things they're saying are absolute nonsense like you're out of your mind like, I don't even have a Bible degree and I know that what you're saying is, is ridiculous. But you wouldn't know unless you know what the Bible says. Like, he, here's the thing. I never went to Bible college. I never went to seminary. And yeah, I can read through these things. How do I know? I read through the Bible a couple times. I've grown up around the Bible my whole life. I've been in verse by verse teaching. And you have that same access to the same book that I do. All you have to do is pick it up and read it. It's a popular analogy that many people use where they ask the question, how do you tell a counterfeit dollar from a regular, you know, real dollar? And the answer is not to study every single counterfeit because every counterfeit will look different. All you need to know is what a real dollar looks like and have a copy with you because then you can see where the inconsistency is in the fake. So that's the value of apologetics is you don't have to study every single topic and taking classes with Pastor Jay is amazing really helpful. But if you're concerned, like, I'll never know the answer to these things. Yes, you do. And you will just read the Bible. And the more you read it, the more you'll know God and God's Holy Spirit will give you wisdom to answer the most brilliant skeptic. You know, we used to take people and some of you guys went with me to Cambridge, England, and we used to debate people on the Cambridge university campus about God. I was like, what did I know? I was like 25 and just like, all I knew was the Bible. And I would ask them questions. They couldn't answer those questions. Why? Because we actually have the truth and they don't. It's pretty surprising. Like when you actually start testing your faith and you start sharing the good news, you realize that everybody has like a vague understanding of what they believe and complete misunderstanding of what Christianity teaches. And you get to share it to them correctly. So Paul gave the full counsel of God. How? Verse 20 says publicly and house to house. So if, you, if you're looking for like biblical justification for gathering and home groups, here it is. He did two places. In a public gathering and he also did it in homes. So if you're still not in home, get in a house. That's just what the Bible says. So, how, so what did he actually talk about? Verse 21, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So repentance and faith. And now there's so much confusion with these two words and we have to talk about it. So what are the conditions of someone's salvation? What are things that you need in order to be considered saved by Jesus Christ? Well, some people on one extreme would say, um, if you pray a prayer, right? And there's no change in your life, can, you really, can it really be said that you're saved? And many of us got saved that way. It's like, we're led through a prayer and like, pray this prayer after me. And after you repeat, it's like, if you pray that prayer today, then you are now in God's kingdom. Great, I'm going to go back to living my life. And there's absolutely no change in their life. So is that person really a Christian? And so some people are really hard on those people. And I said, no, there's no way they're a Christian because you need to exemplify that something has changed in your life. Repentance, right? But then on the other extreme, you have, repenting of sin. Like some people are really harsh and saying that you have to repent of all your sin to be accepted by the Lord and and to really be said that you're saved. However, how much sin do you have to repent of in order to really be accepted? And doesn't that actually turn into legalism and works based salvation? So in other words, it's like, okay, you can pray the prayer, but really we don't know if you're saved yet. It might take some time and we need to see if you start changing your lifestyle and once you change your lifestyle, then God accepts you. I mean, that's closer to Catholicism than it is Christianity. So then what's the answer? Because obviously Paul said that repentance was important and faith was important. So what are these two things? Let's talk about repentance. So here's, here's the thing that goes without saying, but um, we cannot cling to sin and salvation. We can't choose to say like, yes, I want to be saved, but I also want to continue to sin. So there is a need for repentance. In fact, Jesus said it. You don't believe Paul? Believe Jesus. Mark chapter one, verse 15. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So repentance is necessary for salvation. However, what does repentance actually mean? Well, the root meaning of to repent is to think differently or to reconsider. Or the word metanoia in Greek means to change your mind. And we see that in Acts chapter 26, verse 20. It says that, uh, declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem throughout the all the region of Judea, then to the Gentiles, that these people, the unbelievers, should repent, turn to God, And do works befitting repentance. So works was separate from the repentance because repentance is the changing of your mind. Okay, so Norman Geisler, popular theologian who passed a couple years ago, says obedience leading to good works is a natural result of saving faith, but not a qualification for being saved. So repentance is changing your mind. It's saying, I acknowledge that the way I've been living is wrong and there be, there are going to be a lot of things that Jesus has for me to uh, transform in my life and I'm going to need his help in order to do that. So now what is faith? Well, faith also by Norman Geisler, his definition, is faith implies trust in, commitment to, obedience to, and hope in its object. It is the kind of belief that has trust and confidence in Christ for salvation and thereby implies a commitment to follow and obey him. So we are saved by faith alone, but faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Repentance says, I am turning from my sin. I recognize it's wrong. I don't want to do that anymore. Faith is, and now instead I'm trusting in God to save me from my past sin, my present sin, and my future sin. Repentance is only possible because I believe in Jesus to help me to repent, to change my mind, go in the opposite direction which means that good works will come as a natural result of repentance, but they're not the requirement of uh, salvation. Does that make sense? So in other words, if I'm repenting, thief on the cross, did he have time to exemplify good works when he says, please forgive me and would you bring me into heaven, right? Paraphrase. But when he said that, he didn't have time to like, oh, I have to go do some things to really prove that at this point in time, I actually am repenting. The change of his mind was instant and if he had lived longer, then we would have seen a genuine turning away from his old ways and turning to the good because of his faith. So repentance and faith are two sides of its same coin. And the relationship between, between repentance and faith is kind of like, you can't say to somebody, come here without first leaving where you are. So faith is like the coming and repentance is like the turning away from or leaving. Um, hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. And if it doesn't, I'll just say it in a way that may make more sense to everybody who's kind of just like, oh, I don't know if you have to really repent or I don't really know about faith and repentance, things like that. Basically, when you're saying that you want to believe in Jesus, you're saying that you want God to change your life. There's things broken and you're saying, Lord, I want you to change your life or change my life. But why would you want Jesus to change your life but there's nothing about your life you actually want to change? Repentance and faith means that you're saying, God, I want you to save me, and I acknowledge that in the saving, you're going to look at the things in my life and start changing me. And changing your life always starts with changing your mind, which leads to changing your actions. So putting your trust in Jesus will always lead to that change of mind. So, repentance and faith are conditions for salvation. And many of us, we might have a fear of man and sharing this, this um, sharing this boldly with others because we're afraid of what people are going to think. Talking to people about, like Paul was not ashamed to talk about repentance and faith. And today, because of the, the adamant, hostile culture around us, people don't want to share their faith. They don't want to talk about the, the fact that the way that people are thinking is wrong. Not just the way that people are living, the way that people are thinking is wrong. But if we're all going to see God change lives, it's got to start in people's minds. And Paul was fine with sharing the full counsel, knowing that it would actually lead to his eventual death. So he was faithful to proclaim. Something I'm always worried about is, is as I'm being patient and sharing the gospel with other people, how much do I share at one time? Right? I don't want to just like try to like overbear people and say like, all right, let's go through this verse and let's make sure that you know this and pray this prayer with me and, it can be overwhelming. But what I do know is the Holy Spirit guides me in that moment, but I have to be willing that whatever God gives me to speak, that is the thing that I'm going to share with others. And you might have a relationship with someone who's a friend or coworker, And up until this point, you haven't even told them you're a Christian. That was me in my 20s. I'd be having all kinds of people at school, at work, had no idea I was a Christian. Because I was thinking like, one day I'll share with them. Like, I'm just waiting for the perfect opportunity. But the perfect opportunity was an excuse for me ever talking about Jesus at all. So we have to examine our motives, see if there's any fear, and allow God to give us boldness. Lastly, the last key for finishing well is faithful departure. Verse 22. Paul says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit, to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul says he's going, he's going, but it's not like he's like, all right, one of these days I'm going to go. Or he's like Jonah. He's like, all right, I'm going to go in the opposite direction. He says, I'm bound. I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit. I need to go. I got to go. Every city I'm in, I'm hearing God's voice saying, you got to go. Knowing that, only chains and tribulations await me. But he's going, not because he has an earthly hope. He's like, I know that God's calling me saying, I want you to go to Rome. And in Rome, you're going to have a platform and a stage and thousands of people are going to come to faith. It's going to be amazing. You'll never have to be poor ever again. Paul says, oh, change the tribulations await me. Right? I'm compelled to go into my calling and I'm going to be most fulfilled here on this earth. See, it wasn't an earthly hope at all. Now, how many of us, We're we're not like that. And we still slack on God's commands, even when it's for our benefit. So many of us don't have Paul's calling. We're not called to be martyrs. Like, most likely, I don't know, I can't predict the future. Most likely, none of us are going to be martyrs, right, for our faith. We don't live in that kind of country, at least yet. And we're still dragging our feet when it comes to following God's calling. Like, God's given us prosperity and abundance here in America. And we're still like, oh, I don't know. There's just so many things I could do and I'll just sleep in today and we're just lazy. Paul didn't have that option. He says, I have this calling. I know I'm going to die at the hands of my enemies at the end of this. But even at that, it's like, none of these things move me. I don't care. He's not moved by these things. Now think about what that means. Think about this analogy. If you're wrestling somebody else, professionally, you would have to wrestle someone in your weight class, right? Because if a person is much heavier than you, then they're going to be able to take you down much easier. Now, in order for someone to not be moved, think about the amount of weight you would have to have and the amount of weight a person would not have to have in order to try to tackle you and you're unable to be moved. And what Paul is saying is what is in you has to be stronger than what's outside of you. He has this inner fortitude where he's confident and he has faith, knowing that this life he has is not his own. And so he doesn't care because he's been given this life as a gift by God. And so he wants to take advantage of that to God's glory. Think about the missionary, Jim Elliott, who is a missionary to Ecuador. Many of you know, know of him from at least the, the movie, The End of the Spear, who is ministering to these tribes in Ecuador. And eventually he died at the hands of, he was murdered for his faith at the hands of these tribes. Later on, his, his wife, Elizabeth, Elliot, and, and many others came, these ladies, and they eventually led that whole tribe, the same tribe that killed Jim and, and his friends, same tribe was uh, able to come to know Jesus through a person's testimony, but someone had to die in order for that to happen. And so Jim Elliot has this famous quote, and maybe you've heard it before, but he said this, he thinks about his life. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's the way he looked at his life. It's not really a loss. Everybody's gonna have to die someday. And so he did not hold his life dear to himself. Instead, he knew that there was a reward waiting for him as he Pursue Jesus. One last example, you may have heard of Saint Lawrence, who lived around 200 AD. Saint Lawrence is one of the most celebrated Christian martyrs. And so, around the the time of an Emperor Valerian, who was vigorously persecuting Christians, Saint Lawrence was running his church, and then they knocked on his door and said that he would have to give up the treasures of his church or else be sent to prison. And so St. Lawrence says, no problem. I'll give you the church treasures. Eight days later, they show up to his door and he has poor, lame, sick, and children at the front of his door. And he said, where are the church treasures? And he said, these are the treasures of the church. And so it ticked off the emperor so much that he ordered that he would be murdered for his faith. And so he was tied onto a stake, almost like uh, he was uh, put onto a platform that was rotating And he was going to be cooked alive. And St. Lawrence was put on the stake and accounts and testimonies of the witness of his death would say that he had a smile on his faith as he was being cooked to death. And you know what his famous last words were? His famous last words were, turn me over, I'm done on this side. None of these things move me. Now, you have to know, I do not have that kind of faith. (laughs) which is why this is my life verse. Ever since 2014 and I made this my life verse, I always say like, ah, that's the kind of faith I want to have. Lo and behold, the littlest things move me on a daily basis, right? My kids freak out. and I'm like, I feel so angry, right? Like it's not, it doesn't take a lot to push me over, right? But what made Paul the way that he was? Where he's just not moved by anything. Really? Everybody's crying. They're wrapped around him. No, you know, this is the last time they're going to see him. There's Paul in the middle just like, yep, yeah, I know I'm going to die, but it doesn't move me. Why? Because his life is not dear to himself. Paul's the one who said to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's like, I'm debating, like, should I die? Because if I die, I'm with Jesus. But at the same time, if I die, then I can't be with you and you definitely need me. So I'll live here. And if I'm going to be here to live is Christ, not for myself. Can we start to see our lives in light of living for our maker and not for ourselves. And when we do that, we can finish our race with joy. A joy that only comes when we finish our race well. And when God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. But in order to do that, you have to start with the question, well, what is the ministry that you received? Because Paul received the ministry. He knew the lane that he was supposed to run in. And that's why he could go with all of his might. You know, the passage where he says, do you not know that, there's many runners in a race, but only one receives the prize. Therefore, you should run in such a way that you would obtain the prize. Stop looking around your shoulders. Stop looking behind you. Look unto Jesus and realize that we're all in this together, but only one person is going to be able to receive that that prize, that joy. And you should run in such a way that you would obtain it. So, Acts 20, 24, look at the, the last portion of that. He says, finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Think about that word testify. He had a testimony. Paul literally witnessed Jesus in the sky saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And knocked him off his donkey. He was blind for three days. He witnessed, he knew Jesus. He watched him die on a cross as an unbeliever. And it was later that he actually came to saving faith. So he could testify about how God had transformed his life. That gospel, that good news, and it's possible for other people today. There might be a Saul in your life, a person that you're saying, there's no way on earth that that person would ever become a Christian. Well, once upon a time, there was a guy named Saul and he can testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So how about this? What can you testify about? What have you seen? What have you heard? Because God has given you a testimony. He's given you a ministry. And if you receive it, then you can fulfill it. So in conclusion tonight, what do you want to be known for? That was our discussion question at the end of your life. What are the things that you want remembered about you? You want to know what mine are? I have two. The two things I want to be known for at the end of my life is that every step, of God, every step of faith that God ever asked me, I said yes to, no matter how crazy or how like out of my mind I was, which there have been some, many a step of faith. that I'm looking at, I'm like, this is nuts. There's no way this is going to work. You know how much doubt I've had in the past couple of weeks? Not to discourage you, but how much doubt I've had? I'm like, if God doesn't exist, that I am, I am in like so much trouble right? If Jesus is not God, I am in so much trouble because everything I'm doing is I'm basically making a bet with my life that faith actually works. I actually believe in this God. and I'm going to do stupid things according to the world. And people are going to tell me I'm crazy, but I believe that God exists. And I believe that God's speaking to me. And if he's not, then I, I am out of my mind. And I am probably crazy. But if he does exist, then we're going to see. And all of you are witnesses that my life will be an example to others saying, man, he believed God and it worked. Paul believed God and it worked. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I want to know at the end of my life that I pushed the gospel of God further into orbit because I had been here versus not. I want to know that I had an impact on people's souls for eternity because I've been alive. I don't want to just like live and die and then It's like, well, he came out with an album and yes, he made a painting and like in 300 years, nobody cares. But you know who will care? If I fulfill my mission, the people that go to heaven because I obeyed. The souls I'll see for the rest of eternity. What are you investing in? You know, uh, thinking about our seven month old, we named her Nova, cutest baby alive. Um, Sorry to the future generations of the world. But when we gave her a name, everyone was, oh, why did you choose Nova? Nova doesn't mean new and it's a special name. And mostly Jenna thought it was cool and I thought it was cool too. And so we chose the name. And traditionally people choose names because they're special to them. And in uh, ancient Hebrew times, they would choose a name that they thought would be prophetic over a person's life. And so you would have Jacob, which is heel catchers, like, because he came out of the womb and he's grabbing the guy's heel. So he's going to be a trickster. So that was kind of prophetic. You know, Joshua, he will save them from their sins. And so that was always kind of prophecy over your life is the, the minute you're coming into this world, you're given a name. But you know, Jesus also said that he'll give us a name when he returns, a new name. Isn't it kind of cool that like when you're born, your parents give you a name as a prophecy, but then when you die, God gives you a name as a fulfillment. What is the name that God's going to give you that will be a description of your life. What do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to be known for? For me, I want to be known for a person who obeyed God and none of these things move me. Let's pray.